Amen. Amen. Thanks, worship team, for leading us this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray before we dive into the word this morning. Father, we are thankful for you. We're thankful that, um, that Ephesians reminds us that you are the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth has been named. So the whole idea and concept of family that we're celebrating today at Mother's Day, the whole idea of it starts with you, God, because that's who you are as you love us. So God, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts as we open up the scriptures this morning. As you speak to us, God, we pray that it's, we would know that it's you speaking to us. I pray that you'd prompt us to change. God, as we're in this series looking at discipleship, teach us how to follow Jesus. God, we love you and we're glad you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in a series on discipleship. We started last week. And uh, kind of our text that we're looking at, if you got a handout, the verses on the back is Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Discipleship may be a word you know, it may be a word you don't know. But what is important is that we figure out how to define it simply. Jesus says in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. So the good question is, what is a disciple? Well, we go back to the beginning of Matthew and we find in chapter 4, verse 19, him calling his own disciples to come and follow him during his life here on earth. And what he said was really simple, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So we take that short sentence, that short invitation, and we look at three things. He says, follow me. So a disciple is someone who's following Jesus. We looked at that last week. He says, I will make you. That's the process of discipleship, that a disciple is being changed by Jesus. And then the last part is fishers of men. A disciple is joining Jesus on mission. So we're going to look at those three pieces last week, today, and then next week. And then we're going to dive into, for the rest of the summer, all different aspects of discipleship. You know, I was thinking this morning, as we look at that middle uh, piece of that definition in Matthew 4.19, I will make you. This is a message on the process of discipleship. The process of discipleship. And the process of discipleship is a process of change. Jesus says, I will make you a disciple. If you're really following Jesus, you're going to be changed by Jesus. So as I was thinking this week, and we were talking even before the series, we were talking about the dates. We said, okay, we've got Mother's Day coming up. Are we going to preach a Mother's Day sermon? We said, you know what? Let's just move into a series and move, and then we'll just keep going through the series. We'll acknowledge mothers. We'll do parent-child dedication. We'll have a gift. We do have a gift for you in the back. There's some envelopes on a table with a letter from the pastors and a small gift for you. Mom, so make sure you grab one on the way out. So we said we weren't going to preach a Mother's Day sermon. And then I was thinking this morning, I thought, this kind of is a Mother's Day sermon. Because it's one about change. And I don't know about you, but my mom wanted me to change when I was growing up. Like, some for the better, some funny, typical mom stories. And I thought, we're talking about change this morning. And we're going to start off talking about the challenges of change. The challenges of change. But, you know, there's like nobody who could get me to change like my mom could get me to change. Right? Did your mom have that look that she would ever give you? That you were like, I got to stop right now what I'm doing and change. Did your mom ever, <laughs> my mom never did this, so I don't know, but I've heard. Did your mom ever pinch the back of your arm like that? I mean, good Lord. I mean, that get me to change in a heartbeat, whatever I was doing. I remember one time I was playing basketball, and I uh, was very passionate when I played sports, and we were playing in a, in a tournament one summer, and uh, I happened to disagree with the referee's decision, and I happened to tell him I disagreed in a very disrespectful way. 
And my dad wasn't there that day, but my mom, I remember her looking at me in the stands, and it was more intimidating than any look my dad had ever given me during any game I'd ever played. My dad, I knew I could go back and forth with him, and I could say, no, dad, you know, you're wrong, and this, that, and we could talk the sports side of it. My mom, I knew, didn't give a rip what the sports side of it was. She was disappointed in me as her son in that moment, and I felt the wrath of God for the rest of that game. Nobody could get me to change like my mom, and it's interesting because there are all sorts of challenges with change, right? If change were easy, our world would be a very different place. But the challenges of change, I think, are two very simple things. First, that we all know we need to change. Even if you don't know Jesus this morning, even if this is your very first time ever in a church building, we're not even talking about biblical change. We're just talking about changing things in your life. You know you need to change. There are things you want to get better at. That might be why you're here this morning. There are things in your life you know you need to stop doing. And there are things in your life you know you need to start doing. This is why New Year's resolutions are so popular. Because we all know we need to change. But the second challenge of change is that change is really hard. Change is really hard. The behaviors in your life are way deeper rooted than you'd like to probably admit. The things in your life that you want to change are so ingrained in the way you think, in the way you love, in the way you live, that change is no simple process. And because of these two challenges of change, that we all know we need to change, uh, but we all know change is really hard, this leads to the second point this morning, the misunderstandings of change. It's like we misunderstand how change really happens. Last year, I walked through a great season of seeing a, a discipleship counselor, and we talked about change. And he said, hey, go watch this video. It's a sketch, and, and I think it'll be a good setup for our next conversation. We're going to talk about change. And it was a sketch with a guy named Bob Newhart, and he's uh, a counselor, okay, in this skit. And this lady walks into his office and sits down. He says, look, I charge you $5, charge you a dollar a minute, up to five minutes, and then uh, everything after that's free. She's like, wow, that's, that's awesome. He said, I don't think we'll need the five minutes. Nobody ever needs the five minutes. Sit down and tell me your problems. So she sits down and she says uh, she's scared of being buried alive in a box. She's scared of close spaces and, and she has all this anxiety about it. So it affects the way she's in her house because it's like a box and a car and her office. And it's just ruining her life. And he says, okay, so, so it's like claustrophobia. She goes, yeah. And he goes, okay, stop it. <laughs> and she's, well, what do you mean? He said, stop it. And then she goes on, and, and I mean, this whole skit, it's, it's like eight or ten minutes long, and I thought, you know, it's, it's too long to play this morning, but it would have been, you would have been rolling laughing at the way that he's just telling her, just stop it, just stop, no, 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 and she goes, well, the way my mother, he goes, no, 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 we don't do that, just stop it, well, no, when I was being raised as a kid, he goes, no, 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 I don't want to hear that, just stop it. See, the first misunderstanding of change is that we all think change is just sheer willpower. That skit's hilarious, but it's hilarious because it's kind of true. It's kind of true because we've all tried that for our own lives. We've all tried that in our kids' lives. We've all tried that in our friends' lives. But it's also true because we've seen that it doesn't work, right? Change is not just sheer willpower to just stop it. See, we actually call that kind of change legalism, don't we? 
Because really what that kind of changes after is changing our external actions without changing our internal being. And here's what Jesus says about legalism in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 to 26. He's talking to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the inside may also be clean and not just the outside. See, change is not just about outward conformity, external conformity to certain actions and behaviors. We know you can't change in a lasting kind of way if it's only by sheer willpower. Nothing meaningful changes if it's just by your own willpower. No, maybe the other way you think to change, because you okay, it's not external, maybe it's internal, is you think we can change if we have the right information. If I only knew better, I would have done better. Or maybe how many of you in the last 24 hours, I'll raise both hands, have said to your kids, you know better. As if that's some magical formula that they go, you're right, Dad. I got it now. I'll do it better next time. You know better. Well, don't we all know better than to think knowing better is going to make us do better? In fact, that's what the whole Bible is about. That's what the whole Bible is about, right? If all we needed was to know better, then we would have not needed the New Testament. All we would have needed was the law. Go read it, go study it, and just do it. You know it now, so, so why, what's wrong? Why can't you do it? And Psalm 106 is a wonderful chapter, kind of long, that basically tells the story of God's people forgetting. And it tells the story of God's great and mighty deeds to save them and then how they forgot who God was, and then how God saved him again, and then how they didn't remember who he was again. And over and over, they forgot, and I'm thinking, you know what? That's exactly how we are. Change is not just by knowing better. Discipleship is not just information exchange. So if it's not just willpower, if it's not information, I think the last way maybe we misunderstand change is by thinking that it's through our feelings. This is like the cultural... Um, flag to wave right now is be true to your feelings be true to yourself to be authentic right now means to not deny any feeling you have but I think we've got to stop and back up and ask what feelings even are and I think feelings are, are really an internal response to things that are happening in our lives one good illustration that helped me was that feelings are more like a, a light on the dashboard of your car when one of those lights come on to tell you to check your engine or your tire pressure or your oil needs changing, you don't take the dash off and change the light bulb because all of a sudden it's on. That would be silly, right? You, you take out the owner's manual or you call a trusted friend like Al and I call Matthew. Say, hey, uh, this light's on. What do I do? It's telling me I need to do X, Y, and Z. I don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. I'm about to get under there and change the light bulb because <laughs> I want the light off. But you know if you change the light bulb, it doesn't really fix the problem, right? And your emotions are just like that. Your feelings are like that. They tell you that something's going on under the hood. They tell you that something's going on in your life, and you're responding and reacting. You're interpreting your life's circumstances and situations in a certain way. And so what we need to do with our feelings is not, on the one hand, follow them at every turn in our life and say that they are our compass. But on the other hand, we don't need to deny that emotions are bad. But instead of just listening to ourselves, we need to talk to ourselves, and that's exactly what Psalm 42 is about. It it tells us that true change is not in following our emotions, but the psalmist in Psalm 42 is going through one of the deepest and darkest points of his life. 
But instead of just following his emotions and saying, well, it must be that God's forgotten me and I'm gone and, and, and I'm never going to see God again, he actually talks to himself and reminds himself of truth because sometimes our feelings don't line up with the truth. And that's why our feelings cannot always be the guide for our change. So if, if change is hard, and if we often get change wrong because we think it's from willpower or information or following our feelings, what kind of hope do we have? What kind of hope do we have to change? And this leads to our third point in the, in the message this morning, and it's the heart of change. If we're going to change, we have to, I think, see ourselves primarily as worshipers. As worshipers, as lovers, as ancient Christians would say. We've got to see ourselves as worshipers. T Tim Keller has a book called Counterfeit Gods, and here's what he says. The secret to change is to identify and dismantle the counterfeit gods of your heart. Now, let's back up. Counterfeit gods. That's a, that's a strong phrase. Counter, what's a counterfeit god? Well, it's, it's an idol. Now, you may think, now, hold on, I'm not bowed down to anything recently, so what do you mean idol? An idol is anything that's more important to you than God. We're going to go on and, and define some idols and even ask some questions. You may see some in your handout that help us discover the idols of our own heart. But in Ezekiel 14, verse 3, God uses the prophet Ezekiel to condemn the elders of his people for having set up idols in their hearts. In the Old Testament, idolatry was often physical because there were actual gods that were carved or built and people would actually sacrifice to them and actually get on their knees before them and actually pray to them. But in our world today, it doesn't work just like that. Our worship isn't always in that kind of currency. Today, our worship looks different. It's through your attention. It's through what you think about, what you dream about, what has power over your emotions. Our, idol, our idolatry looks different, but the concept is the same. And, and here's how it's the same. Think about the Ten Commandments. What's the very first one? You shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther said, the other nine commandments don't matter if you don't follow the first one. Because the first one's all about idolatry. Now, not just a visual image of idolatry, but it's about idolatry in our heart. And he went on to say that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Why? Because we cannot help but worship something. And when we worship something, we organize our life around that thing. That thing begins to control us. So if we're going to change, we have to go to the heart because the heart is what worships. The heart is what loves things ultimately. And here is our main text for this morning, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, because it gives us a vision for the kind of change Jesus wants to affect in our life. Matthew 22, verse 37 says this. Some lawyers had come and had asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now he's quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he's saying the greatest commandment is to love God. If you miss this, you miss everything. So if the greatest commandment is to love God and Jesus says, I'm going to make you something. I'm going to change you. I'm going to bring transformation in your life. How is he doing it? He's changing what we love. Because what we love determines everything else about us. Jesus is saying, if you can change what you love, I can change what you love. And everything else about you can be different. And in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus is giving us a vision for the kind of people he's making us into. 
He's giving us a vision for that. But I think if you have that positive vision of someone who's loving God, we've got to step back for a second and say, the heart of change is that God is changing me out of something and into something else. How does he do that? How do I know the things that I'm worshiping that I shouldn't be? How do I know the idols of my life? How do I know my own counterfeit gods, as Tim Keller would say? How do I know that? And that's where some of these questions come in that I put in your handout this morning. An idol in your life is something that practically, this is a good example. We, we say in the Psalms, God, you're my refuge, right? So what is a refuge? I mean, it, when you feel storms, when you feel pressure, when you feel discomfort, when you feel sad, what are you going to do? You're going to go to a refuge. You're going to go to a place that tries to make you feel safe and comfortable. And we sing and we read and we pray, God, you're my refuge. You're my safe place. But what practically do you go to when you need a refuge? For me, I sit at the end of a day. You see how tiring my days can be? Carrie, especially, we're running around and we're, you know, if you, if you want to raise, if you want Christ to transform your kid's life, say amen. A hearty amen. I love my kids so much. And we sit at the end of the day like all of you for all different reasons and we're exhausted where do I go I, I pulled this out I don't know about you but I pulled this out where do you go for what's your refuge where's the place you go to find safety where's the place you go to find comfort and joy I'll tell you some ways you can identify idols in your life is from your thoughts what do you think about when you're daydreaming where does your mind go when you're bored? Or when you're sad, what do you tend to think about to make you happy again? How, how do your thoughts reveal the thing you're worshiping? Or money, Math, Matthew 6, 21, here's what Jesus says. Where your treasure is, there your, there's your heart. You want to know where your heart is? You want to know the thing you're loving? You want to know the thing you're worshiping? Follow your treasure. What is it easiest for you to spend money on? What comes most natural? I have been, I told Carrie, I said, I don't know what it is the last two or three weeks. I have just been uh, not quite consumed, but it's just been so tempting for me to run after possessions. I don't know why. I mean, not like, hey, I want the, the 20 bedroom, $10 million house. I mean, that's, that's absurd, right? For, for, to make that big of a leap. But, here, but here's what the sin and the idol of possessions will do. It'll give you the next thing that you don't have. The enemy's smarter than to give you something 10 steps down the road. He'll give you the very next thing. If I had a different, you know, if we had different flooring in our house, if we had a different kind of backyard, if we just had a little bit bigger of a house or a little bit different of a car, if I, for some reason, my possessions have been just at the forefront of my mind lately. What's, what is it easiest for you to spend your money on? How do you spend your money when you're sad? How do you spend your money when you're happy? Your, your bank account doesn't lie. And Jesus says you can follow your treasure, and at the end of that line, you'll find your heart. What about your prayers? You know your prayers can actually reveal counterfeit gods in your life? What's the thing you pray for the most? I'm not saying that's a bad thing, right? I mean, I'm not just here to throw stones and say that everything you do is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is to stop and evaluate. What are the things you're asking God to do in your life? And then how do you respond when you don't get what you're asking? How do you respond when you don't get your way? What, 
Let's talk about our emotions again. What has the power to send you spiraling into anger? What kind of missed expectation? Or what kind of disobedience? Or what kind of disrespect has the power that when that happens in your life, you say, I got a lot of patience, but not for that. Why is it that that thing you don't have any patience for? Is it because that thing holds such control in your life that maybe it's your identity? How do other people see you? How do you want them to see you? What kind of effort do you put into curating and editing your life so that they see you in a certain kind of way? See, we, have, we could ask these kinds of questions all day long, but the only value in uncovering the idols in our life is that they would be replaced with the one true God in our worship of him. That is biblical change. That is the heart of change that Jesus wants to bring in your life. He doesn't just want to change the externals. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is not legalism. He doesn't want to just pour new information into your mind. You can be theologically astute and have read all the books and still not be a believer or a growing disciple. Discipleship is not just information exchange. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to change your heart. He wants to change the thing that you love most and do what Augustine called reordering your loves. Not that you would love important things less, but that you would love God more. I think the most challenging idols and counterfeit gods in my own life are good things that I've made ultimate things. Things even like the ministry. I mean, Al talks to more pastors than me. He could tell you decades worth of stories of pastors who have idolized ministry and church life to the detriment of their families. Now, what happened? Is ministry bad? No. But it's a really poor God. Is your marriage a bad thing? Absolutely not. But your spouse is going to be a really bad savior. Is your home a bad thing? No, but it's a really bad refuge if that's all you've got. And when Jesus invites us into a lifelong process of change, what he's inviting us into is to say, take all these other things you've been setting your hope on, setting your identity in, but finding your refuge in, and let's actually put those aside for a minute and come to me and find your rest in me, find your identity in me, find your meaning and your purpose and your hope in me. And then you'll actually be more free to enjoy these other things. But only after you come to me, for after you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the invitation of, that's the heart of change. Is that it starts in your heart. But then how does God do this work in our life? This is the pattern of change. How does God bring about this change in our lives? Well, there's a, a few different ways. But first, he, he works through scripture. He works through scripture. You cannot begin to talk about how God works in your life without talking about scripture. And, and the two passages you'll hear us repeat maybe more than any other are 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and then Hebrews 4, 12. 2 Timothy says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. It's good for teaching and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. I'm picturing a road because we have a, a picture we draw that's good for teaching it's good for showing you the right way to live. But then, inevitably, when you're off the road, it's good for rebuke, telling you, wrong way. 
then it's good for correction. It doesn't leave you in the pit saying, sorry, dead end, nowhere to turn around. It shows you the correction and say, turn this way and you can get back on the path. And then it, it trains you in righteousness. So as you come by the same turn again, when you're tempted to go the wrong way, it trains you how to go the right way. Scripture is good for, it's good for teaching you how to live a godly life. And Hebrews 4.12 reminds you that Scripture is living and it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It actually pierces to the depths of who you are. It reveals your heart and your mind before God. We can't talk about how God changes us without talking about how God works through Scripture. But then as he works through Scripture and as he works through some of these other things, we know that God works from the inside out. We said that at the beginning. That God's not interested in working from the outside in. He's not interested in just changing your behavior and leaving your heart untouched. That's phony legalism. God works from the inside out. And here's another way God works. He works through people. God works through people. One of the uh, most important passages for ministry that we prayed through this week as leaders is Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to Ephesians 4 and listen to the way God talks about people, his people, interacting with each other. The Christian life is impossible without people. You'll never change without people in your life. He says he gave church leaders, I'll summarize up to verse 11. He gives church leaders, and then verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if you're a saint, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to ministry. You are called to ministry. To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? Building up the body of Christ. That's all the other saints. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, here's our work with one another, speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can't be built up into Christ unless you're a part of Christian community. God's rigged the whole thing to where you cannot do this by yourself. You can't. You cannot do this by yourself. We have to submit to other people speaking the truth in love into our lives. And that means we have to submit to being known by other people so that they can know our counterfeit gods and maybe know them better than we know them because we don't know ourselves as accurately as we think we do. We think we have the best vision of ourselves and I don't know, I saw a picture of myself recently and I thought, ugh. You know, you, you walk around with confidence until somebody takes a picture of you when you're not expecting it. You go, dear Lord. And I thought, hey, that's a great illustration. I mean, I walk around with spiritual confidence too all the time thinking I, I understand God and I've never been closer to him and I've got the things in my pocket. But then somebody else comes in and says, hey, look, you've been, when I hear you talk, I just hear this tone that's just not kind. It's condescending. I've not intended to be condescending. I don't. And then immediately I want to defend myself. Hey, you, you've just, you've not had any patience with the kids. I don't know what's going on, I, but you've just not had any patience. You may not have any patience. If they would stop breaking the rules, I wouldn't need to have patience. And I want to defend myself. But I need other people to see me better than I see myself. And I need to submit to the truth in love that they're going to speak to my life. 
We need other people because God works through people. And then here, here's, the, here's, I think, the last one for the pattern of how God changes us. God works over an entire lifetime. God works over an entire lifetime. See, what we want quickly, God often will take a lifetime to change. It's more crock pot than microwave. Okay? It's more crock pot than my, it takes a long time. And, and we, when we want to experience change immediately, I'll tell you how we often pray. We pray for God to change our circumstances. But God is often more interested in using our circumstances to change us. And that's why it takes a lifetime of suffering, a lifetime of joy, a lifetime of relationships, a lifetime of obedience. Eugene Peterson has a great book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He takes that quote from maybe the most famous atheist in human history, Frederick Nietzsche. So I go, take that, atheism. I'm going to take your quote and redeem it to talk about the Christian life. Is a long obedience in the same direction. It's long. The change you want in your life, the change even God wants in your life, is not as quick as maybe you want it to be. And see, because of that, because God works over a lifetime, one of the most valuable lessons I've learned of following Jesus and I've not mastered or not even begun, not even on level one, is uh, analysis paralysis. Maybe you've heard that before. That you analyze something so much you're paralyzed from taking any action on it. See, the danger with talking about change is that we as Christians can actually focus on change and that's not the point. You could spend your whole life discovering idols in your heart and, and here's the truth you'll die with them still in your heart. You can spend your whole life focused on repenting and stopping the bad things you do. But here's the, here's the thing. You're going to die with, with sins still holding on to you. You're not going to get to a point of perfection in this life. You will die with sins unrepented of, relationships unrestored. You're going to die an imperfect person in need of grace. So here's the point of that. It's futile vain, pointless to spend your life thinking you can perfect yourself and perfectly weed the garden of your heart. You can't. So that's why an old Puritan writer, Robert Murray McShane, he wrote a year-long Bible reading plan that many people still use today. He said, for every one look at yourself, now listen, he's not saying don't look at yourself, don't evaluate your heart, don't discover those idols and counterfeit gods, but here's what he's saying. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every one time you try to find the counterfeit gods in your heart, take 10 times to look at the beauty of Jesus because the point of change is worship. And worship is not focused on you. Worship is focused on the one you're worshiping, and that is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 says that we're transformed as we behold the glory of God. Our transformation actually happens the minute we stop thinking about our transformation. The change you want to see in your life will actually begin to happen the moment you stop focusing on the change needing to happen in your life. And it'll begin to happen when you begin to focus on Christ. Take your eyes off yourself and look to Jesus. God works over a lifetime. And the last point this morning is the rhythms of change. God does it, but he invites us into the process. 
God is doing it by making us love him more and inviting us in and showing us what he's like and giving us scripture and giving us people. But what are your rhythms for life? How do you step into the kind of rhythm of living that's going to lend itself to biblical change? And this is where we talk about what's historically been called spiritual disciplines. Now, you could go pick up a book. I could recommend some great ones. Don Whitney wrote a book decades ago called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. I'd encourage you to get it and read it. There's a more recent one called Habits of Grace by a man named David Mathis. Get that, read that. And there's not like one exhaustive list of spiritual disciplines. And you're not going to find spiritual disciplines listed in the Bible in a list. But what spiritual disciplines are do is they show you, hey, here are things as a believer that if you do these things, this is what it takes for you to follow Jesus. This is what it takes for you to be formed spiritually, is to do these kinds of things. And listen to the two that every other one really stems off of these two, scripture and prayer. You've got to have a discipline of your life of taking in scripture. Now, there's a lot of ways you can take in scripture. Don't get overwhelmed by trying to do them all this afternoon or tomorrow morning. But you could you could read scripture. You could study scripture. You could memorize scripture. You could listen to scripture like you're doing this morning. You could meditate on scripture. And I would encourage you that no matter what you do to take in scripture in your life, there's a cool app called Dwell that's like got great music on the background, and you hit play and you could listen to whole books of the Bible on there. But no matter what you do, if you listen, if you read, if you study, if you memorize, here's what I'd encourage you to do is meditate on Scripture. What does meditate mean? Meditate means you're taking it from your head down into your heart. It means you don't move past it so quick that your eyes hit the words and you give meaning to those words and then you're just going on to the next paragraph. But you stop for a second and you ask some questions about it. Like, what is this really showing me about God? What is this really showing me about myself? And what is this really showing me about what I ought to do? spiritual disciplines that you've got to lean into if you're going to change the first it's got to be scripture has got to be first right because we just saw that God uses scripture to change our lives and so I would encourage you to breathe in scripture and then breathe out prayer if scripture is God's word to you prayer is your word back to God so as you breathe in scripture I would encourage you to breathe out prayer now here's what this is going to take in your life it's going to take pace you can't finish this thing tomorrow. Th this is not like the kind of thing that you pay into and then you get out like immediately. Like, it's not like you take withdrawals the same day you're making deposits on this thing. I mean, it doesn't work like that. That's not how spiritual disciplines work because that's not how the Christian life works. Remember, it takes a lifetime. The point of spiritual disciplines is that you are having fellowship with God. Because the truth about the counterfeit gods in your life and in your heart, the truth about the idols of your heart is that they can't just be removed and nothing left in their place. They have to be replaced with something else because God's hardwired you to worship. You are going to love something more than every other thing. The only question is, what is it? And when God invites you to a lifetime of change, he's inviting you not just to remove the idols of your heart, but to replace them with the one true God who is creator of the heavens and the earth and also who stooped low enough to die on the cross to bring you close to him. And God says, look at that. Look at my story in the scriptures and be in awe of it. 
That's a good application. If you read the Bible and you say, what's the application of this? What should I do? Be amazed at God. That's a perfectly acceptable one. But the invitation to change, the process of discipleship is a process of change. Now, we could spend an entire summer preaching just on change. We could talk about the Holy Spirit, and we could talk more about spiritual disciplines, and we could talk more about repentance. We could talk about a lot of things that are are aspects of change. But what I wanted to do this morning in one shot at this was to say, what's the deepest truth about change? And the deepest truth is that your heart is worshiping something. Jesus wants that something to be him. So let's pray. Nathan, come on up, and we're going to sing another song this morning. I hope God is doing some good things in your life. I hope God's bringing change in your life. This morning, we sing a song after the message to give everyone a chance to be still and respond. So if you want to stay seated, stay seated. If you'd like to stand and sing with us, uh, you're free to do that. But I'm going to pray for us, and I want to invite you to consider, how is God changing you? Read through those questions on your handout and, and ask yourself, what are, the, what are the things that I'm loving more than God in my life? What are the things that are the functional God of my life? What are the things that I look to for comfort and refuge and rest and peace and identity? And then I want you to look at Jesus. Say, Jesus, I, I want to get all those things from you. And so as we sing, I'd invite you to do that work in your heart. Do it with the Lord. Pray and talk to him. And we can sing together. Al will be over here. I'll be over here. I'd love to pray with you. So let me pray for us now, and then we'll sing. God, we love you. Thanks for wanting to change us. I, I don't want to move past that, God, because I am thankful that you don't leave us the way we are. You love us just the way we are, but you love us too much to leave us that way. And I'm thankful for that, God, because I'm not happy with the way I am. God, thank you that there is something deep enough about me that can actually change. That God, it's not just about, well, the reason you haven't changed is because you haven't tried hard enough. That would be so defeating, God. But what you're telling us is, hey, why don't you come and look at me? And so, God, this morning, we want to behold you. We want to look at you. We want to see that you are the only one that's truly worth worshiping. And as we worship you, God, we pray that the idols of our heart would be replaced that they'd be cast out, that they're not worthy of being worshipped by us, God. We don't have to find our identity in the changing and fading things of this world, but we can find it in you and in you alone. So work on our hearts this morning, God. We pray you'd be honored and glorified as we sing together in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.